So over the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about families. Now, before some of you tune me out, it's not going to be your usual family discussion. So give me, give me your attention, bear with me, because we are going to be talking about families today and next week, but not how you would usually expect in a church service, not how you would usually expect when families come up. So to do this, we have to do a little time travel. So we're going to travel back in time to the first century, around about 30 to 33 AD, Auto Domine, the year of our Lord. This is where the passage that we're reading today takes place. It's a culture that was formed by the Greeks conquering everything, and then the Romans coming in and mopping up, and it's a culture that is lots of different cultures bleeding over each other. The one thing that all of the cultures have in common is the priority of the family. The family in the first century is your means of protection. If you don't have a family, you're out of luck. You have no protection. Your family is your workforce. You own a farm. You own a business. You don't hire workers. No, they are related to you. There was no insurance. There was no social security. There was no retirement save a family taking care of their elders, of their parents. Now, this may be very different than our time. It may be that now, actually, we do think families are important, but it's the reverse. It's the parents' job to provide for the kids and give them plenty of opportunities and to make sure they have all they need and their teeth are straight and they're getting the right vitamins and minerals and so on. But no matter whether you live in the first or the 21st century, there is this feeling that families are important. For some, we miss out. We don't have a family. Maybe worse, we have families that are not, that are not very good. We have bad families. See, that's the way it was in the first century, too. If you didn't have a family, it was open season on you. As a matter of fact, people would sell themselves into slavery in order to have all the protections of a family, but instead be a slave. You were considered less of a person if you did not have a family in the first century. So this is the world that Jesus is, inter- is, is bringing us into in this story. And it's going to be important as we move forward, because if we don't understand how Jesus views the family, we won't get how incredibly countercultural his words today are. So then... My mind, of course, goes to thinking of of historical examples. If we fast forward in our time machine to about the year 70 to 80 AD or all the way up to about 200 AD, we see Christians all over the place. And what are they doing? They are taking care of those people without families. They are taking in the widows and the orphans, the widower, bringing them into their families. We see the early church confounding the Romans in that babies that were left on the side of the road to die because their parents couldn't take care of them were adopted by Christians into their families and made their sons and daughters. This was mind-boggling to the world at that time. Those are worthless. Not even their family wants them. Throw them away. Christians go, no, we'll take them. Why do, across the world today, are there churches that have drop boxes where mothers can drop off their babies? No questions asked, and the church will take care of them. 
Why do Christians do this? Where does this come from? Well, to the outside world, they would say, hey, it's because Christians are told they have to do it. They have these rules in this old book, you must do these things. And while that may be true, we do have things in our Bible that say we should do. Being told what to do isn't always the best motivation, is it? Because as soon as that person that's telling you what to do isn't there, you're probably, sin showing, going to do that thing. You all know it's true. If there's no cop around, you go faster. Amen? So it can't be that the law is what's motivating us. Instead, true followers of Jesus, those who have been captivated by his love in gratitude, obey and say, we will take these kids in. We will take you who have no family in. Why? Because we're told to? No, because that's what Jesus did for us. And out of gratitude, we do that to others. Out of obedience to him, we do that to others. See, this is the correct response. When you see the love given to us that we've sung about this morning, that we'll continue to sing about for as long as Jesus tarries, that love should overwhelm us and go, I am going to treat those people the way I have been treated. We respond correctly. It's a gift. Grace is a gift. So then, what's the deal with this passage that Katie just read? You guys heard it. Jesus seems to be saying, nah, I don't need my mom. I don't need my brothers. Which, by the way, those are his half-brothers because Mary was not a perpetual virgin for all of eternity. All right? She had other kids. He even had sisters. We'll hear about that in a few weeks. So what the heck? What is Jesus doing here? Is he just saying biological family doesn't matter, just the spiritual family? Is he saying the disciples are more important than his mom? How do we make sense of this? I thought Jesus was pro-family. Isn't that what we teach? The pro-family, we want families. Good, it's good to have families. Well, let me tell you, first off, he's not putting down the family. In fact, he's redefining it. And as we look at it today, we'll see that he is saying, this is what your love should be like in the church, so close to the love that a family should have for each other. Jesus is taking the most important relationship of his world, your family, and using it to say, your love towards each other is going to be exactly like that. My love towards you is going to be exactly like the most important love in my life. Because remember, we see Jesus on the cross. He's dying. He's paying for all of our sins. And at that same moment, he goes, John, take care of my mom, please. I'm not going to be here. So Jesus is saying, I love my mom incredibly, and I love you all exactly that way. So whether you have a family or not, Jesus is changing how we view family. So whether you had a good family, no family, or a terrible family, Jesus wants you to understand family correctly. So today we're going to look at this passage, we're going to look at this message, so come with me as we do. The big idea is those who do the will of God are closer to Jesus than his siblings and his mother. Those who do the will of God are closer to Jesus than his siblings and his mother. A relationship with, with Jesus takes priority over all of these. So how have we gotten to this point? See, Matthew is a, he's a genius storyteller. He's telling Jesus' history, and as he's doing it, he's getting us to a big point. He wants us to see not just here's all the things that happened to Jesus. 
He wants us to come into contact with the living Savior and say, this is who he is. So where have we been? Well, if you remember, Jesus heals a man. And the people go, hey, this is the son of David. Pharisees go, no, no, son of the devil. That's who he is. Jesus responds with saying, no, if I'm here, I am here for the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is here, which means you have to deal with this. Jesus then says, there's two sides. You're either for me or you're against me. He says, the words that these guys are spouting that are evil comes from their evil hearts. They then demand a sign. Well, if you're from God, show us a sign. And then last week, like we saw, Jesus says, the only sign you're going to see is the sign of Jonah, the sign of judgment, the sign of the, the Jonah in the whale for three days, looking forward to his death on the cross. See, Jesus has been redefining what it means to be his disciple, what it means to follow him. Because the Jews haven't got this. The Jews have been adulterous. They are a bride that is cheating on the bridegroom. And they're doing it with this false religion that they've created, which is all about, here's all the things I have to do. And so this family that Jesus has walked into, his chosen people, the Israelites, are in complete disarray because they've forgotten their first love. And so Jesus wants to point us to that. So let's walk through this passage together. Look at verse 46. This is our context. This is the story. Jesus is speaking to the crowds. Verse 46, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. This that word behold again. It's surprise. This was not expected. Jesus, again, like I said, it said, those who are with me gather and those who are against me scatter. We don't know where Jesus' family is at at this point. Matthew doesn't feel like telling us. Now, Mark and John do talk a little bit about where his family's at. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus' brothers think he's out of his mind. Okay? John 7 says his brothers didn't believe him. Matthew doesn't tell us about their attitude. But he does say that they are outside, which we'll get into what that might mean here in a minute. But they do show up and they want to interrupt Jesus' teaching. Jesus has now been teaching for quite a while, a couple chapters now. And Mary and his brothers show up and say, we need to talk to him. Verse 48, this is the question. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now, before we get into that, I know everybody in here can count. Where's verse 47? It's not there. Some of you, some of your translations will have it there. Others of you will have it in a footnote. But we need to talk about this. And this is actually not just one of those nerd alert things, okay? This is one of those things that helps us get that this Bible is so incredibly accurate that we can find when people have added in a phrase. So verse 47 is not a mystery. We know what it is. Here it is on the screen. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside asking to speak to you. So it's not a missing verse. But it's a verse that we know was probably not in the very original manuscripts. Okay, what's a manuscript? A manuscript is a copy of the Bible. We have about 5,000 copies in Greek of the New Testament within about 100 years to 200 years of when it was written. We have another six to 7,000 copies of it in Latin. And then if you throw all the other, other languages together, we've got somewhere in the neighborhood of 25,000 copies of the Bible. And you're like, okay, that's no big deal. We've got like a hundred right here in this room. 
The difference is, is that these are all hand copies. And so what we do is we compare them to each other to make sure that we have the most accurate Bible. So I'll tell you right now, if you have a newer Bible in your hands, on your phone in front of you right now, you can be assured that 99.9999% of that is exactly what was originally there. You don't have to take our word for it. Trust us. These are the words of God. No, you can compare it. You can do this. You can go online and you can see old copies and you can see how the different translations have taken different words and try to explain them certain ways. So this is one of those verses that got in there somehow. So how did it get there? Well, if you look at verse 46, it says Jesus is speaking to the people. In verse 48, it says Jesus is replying to a man. So somewhere along the line, somebody said, that didn't make a lot of sense. So they went over to Mark and to Luke, and it said, oh, a person came up and told him. We'll just put that verse in there, just to clarify, to make sense of it. Okay, does it need to be there? Nope. Does it matter? Nope. Does it change anything in what we're reading? Nope. Are there others of these in the Bible? Yeah, there are. Are any of those changing the meaning of things? Not a one. So this is the good news. Your Bible is accurate. Your Bible is true. So now we have to deal with what it says. All right, so let's get into what it says. Jesus' family shows up and they're expecting to be treated differently. You know, there are categories in our world about how people are supposed to be treated, right? There's a big push in our world right now, what's called identity politics, which is where you are identified by your skin color, you're identified by your sexual orientation, your gender, and so on. And there's this big push that you are in this box. This is who you are, right? Again, first century is no different. Difference is they only have three, and the boxes are where your, where, where your family is, where you're from, and then your gender. So if your family is rich, you get treated like a rich person. If your family is middle of the road, you get treated like a middle of the road. There's none of this, I'm going to reinvent myself. What your family is, is what you are. That's how the world was viewed. Same thing when it came from nation of origin. Certain people were pigeonholed based on where they were from. And then, of course, we see gender being an issue as well. Men were in control. It was a real patriarchy, not just a patriarchy that has a name slapped on it. This was a real patriarchy. Women had no value. They were considered pieces of property. And isn't it interesting that all throughout the Bible, all three of those get blown up? Some of Jesus' earliest followers are women. The people who find him, on, the first people that he reveals himself to on his resurrection were women. Right? Throughout the Bible, women are important, and even more so in the New Testament. Nation of origin. What was Pentecost? Hundreds of people, and they all speak in different languages, and he says, I'm going to cut through all this. You're all going to hear the good news. And then that whole, you know, Great Commission thing, right? Go into all the nations. Not the Jewish nations. Go into all the nations. So here, he's hitting number one. The family was the number one way that you were pigeonholed and you were put in a box. It was the way you felt protected. It was the source of your identity. As a matter of fact, we look at all of our last names, right? All of our last names, they're kind of creative, right? We've got some interesting ones, right? Uh, what's a gill, all right? I don't know what a gill is, right? What's a Thunberg? I mean, come on, right? I mean, we can go. There's some other ones, and those are just, those are easy ones, right? I love my Debbies. Sorry, Debbie. You know where last names came from? 
It was telling you who you were related to, or it was telling you what your dad did. So guess what? If your last name's Carpenter, what was your dad doing? Now, I don't know what a Robert is. I hope it doesn't mean that I'm related to robbers. Could be. It's probably that at some point, my name was probably Robert's son, and because I was a son of Robert at some point in the history, that's where Roberts came from. I don't know. It's a fun little way to get, waste a lot of time on the internet to figure out where your last names came from. But a lot of the last names, especially in Jesus' time, Jesus' last name would have been Bar-Joseph, which meant son of Joseph. Your identity was whose family you belonged to. And that was where everything came from. So here, Jesus goes, we need to push in on this and see that this is not the identity that we want. Our identity should be who we follow. So we notice they're standing outside. Matthew doesn't explain this. Now, most people think that it was not because he was indoors, because there would not have been a place for him to be that would have been big enough for a big crowd. Okay, we're talking about he's hanging around in the Galilee area. There's no big buildings. There's no Moda Center or something like that. So probably what Matthew means is that they're outside the crowd. And he may be speaking even metaphorically and saying, they're outside of Jesus' circle in that they don't believe in him. You know, maybe they're like, I mean, Mary is faithful. We saw that, right? We're going to sing, we're going to hear Mary's song again when we get to Easter or to Christmas. We're going to hear that amazing Magnificat that she puts together. She trusts the Lord, but she's having a real hard time right here. Just like John the Baptist. Remember in chapter 11, John the Baptist goes, are you the Christ or should we look for someone else? She struggles with this because this idea of what Jesus is saying about dying for people doesn't match up with a mom's plans for her son. So this makes me think of two things that I think we need to address. First of all, when you submit and become a follower of Jesus, when you submit and become one of his disciples, it's not uncommon for your family to think you're crazy. It's not uncommon for this to divide family members. It happens. It happens a whole lot more than many of us realize. So Jesus' family does not warm up to him until he dies and is raised from the dead. The second thing is that it takes time. Mary took a long time to get this. Think about that. Mary didn't believe until she saw her son tortured, brutalized, and dead. Man, think about that. She has to, when Mary gets saved, she has to glorify God for the torture and murder of her firstborn son. Of the one, they didn't have diapers, but you can imagine with me. Of the one whose diapers she changed. Of the one who she taught how to walk. Of the one she did the airplane with the food into the mouth. She had to go, he was murdered for my sake. That's a big step to get to, isn't it? So there is no step in any of our lives that is that big that the Lord can't bring us to that, that we can glorify in the death of our Savior. What an crazy, amazing story. So amazing, in fact, that we know that James and Jude, two of Jesus' brothers, also became followers. We don't know about the sisters or any of the other brothers, but we do know that there were at least two. So Jesus is putting love of family down in the third place. We got love of God, love of believers, and then love of family. It's an interesting perspective, and it's one that is, like I said, culturally very different. So now how does Jesus respond? Verse 49, stretching out his hand towards his disciples, 
He said, here are my mother and my brothers. What Jesus is not saying, and I've already said this, is he's not saying, don't take care of your family. In a few chapters, he's going to get on the Pharisees because they don't take care of their family. In John 19, like I said earlier, Jesus says, John, take care of my mother. Jesus' mothers and brothers are there in Acts chapter 1 in the upper room. Jesus says, your spiritual relationships are binding, just as binding as physical ones. But the amazing part is, is the spiritual ones go on forever. They go on forever. So this leads me to two questions, and, and, and Matthew can see this coming. Jesus can see this coming. So is, is this saying that all people are a part of Jesus' family? It's not. It's saying, my disciples. He's not saying the crowd, everybody following him, but it's the 12 who are the closest. So then, naturally, my second question is, how do I get a part of the 12? And Jesus tells us, verse 50, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Again, he's redefining these relationships, saying, if you believe in me, if you, if you listen to me, if you rest in me, if you acknowledge my authority, you are as dear to me as the best mom, brothers, and sisters in the world. We have that phrase, blood is thicker than water, and it is. It is thicker than ordinary water, but the water that Jesus is talking about is that water that wells up to eternal life. We naturally think my family is made up of those who are either related to me by blood or a legal document. I had no choice, so I have to stick with them. There is a thickness in the relationship, and there should be. Jesus comes along and says, you're right. There is a thickness there, and there is a bond there, and I, I, I agree with that. But Jesus says there's also a unity and a connectedness that we need to have as the family of God because this is the family that lives for eternity. This is the family that goes on. It's permanent. It's substantial. It's strong. It's sure. It's lasting. See, blood and religion don't get you into heaven, but being a part of Jesus' family does. So that's our, that's our section for this week. There's not a lot there. But I see three big inferences that we need to get from this passage. Three things that we really need to push in on to get out of this passage. So here's the first one. This may not sound like good news, but it is. Family does not save. Your family does not save you. Those who lose their earthly family in following Jesus will get a new family. We shouldn't be surprised by this teaching, right? Jesus has been dealing with this for a while now. Let me show you. Back when James and John are called, they're called to leave their father. They don't even help them clean up. They just drop the nets and go. Jesus has a would-be follower come to him and says, well, first let me go bury my father. And Jesus says, no, leave them. Come follow me. In chapter 10, we've seen this before. Jesus says, your own family members will betray you because you're following me. Chapter 10, verse 37, he says, don't love your father and mother more than me. Later on in chapter 19, Peter, he says to Peter, anyone who loses their family for my sake will receive a hundredfold in the present, meaning the church. So this is really kind of the kingpin of the entire teaching on family by Jesus. Family is important, and yes, we should strive to have whole families, but it does not save. It does not save, and it's not a surprise. 
Remember, most of the people throughout history have relied on their family. So he's saying, no, let your allegiance be to me first and foremost. If we look at, we were looking at um, Psalm 91 in our FCA huddle this week. And it was interesting because Psalm 91 was written about a thousand years before Jesus came. And as we're, we're reading it, it's all of these, don't be afraid of this, don't be afraid of that, don't be afraid of this. And, and God was trying to get our eyes off the fact of, I don't have to fix all these problems by getting a stronger, more full family or a, a better army or a better police force or better walls. No, put your trust in God. The reason you are alive, the reason you exist is because of God. And so this entire thing is all that same idea. It's throughout the Bible. Our safety comes not from all the things we put in place. You can have plug protectors in every single electrical plug. You can have battery backups. You can have extra water. You can have all of the things you need. You are only as safe as God allows you to be at this moment. So our safety does not come from our family. Now, I need to stay here because we are not saved by our family. Hear this as well. You're not damned by your family either. If you come from a long line of not-so-great people, or if you have someone in your family who's done something awful or is doing something awful, they don't damn you. You get that? It, it, it works both ways. It's not just, oh, yeah, okay, they can't save us, but oh, they can take us to hell. No, it doesn't. One of the things that the Bible deals with a lot is shame. And we feel shame from things people have done in our family. You know what? If my last name is based on the fact I'm related to a bunch of robbers, guess what? That's not on me. I am standing before the Lord by myself. I'm not standing with a bunch of robbers. So there's our first, first point of this inference. Second point of this inference is that your self-worth is not tied to your kids and what they do. It's not tied to what your kids do. You can't save your kids with your faith, and you cannot be damned by their lack of faith. See, family does not save. Our hope, we, 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 we as Christians have hope for our families, but we need to not put our hope in our families. Think about it this way. Let's do a little thought experiment about priorities, okay? Which one of these two stories looks more like the biblical model, all right? So here's the first one. You have a family. This family has a young teenager. This teenager has decided that he is going to live an alternative lifestyle, the family can't deal with it, they struggle with it, and over time, that family moves on over to a nice liberal church that accepts everybody and condones everything, and before you know it, they're completely over on this side of the camp. Why? Because this child that has been what they believe is the most important thing in their life, this idol in their life, has done something that they can't square with their belief so their beliefs need to change. Now, if you think this is made up, I can think of at least a half dozen times this has happened for me as a teacher. Whether it be a theological issue, a cultural issue, a lifestyle issue, all sorts of different things that have been chosen. And being at a private school, I'm sorry to say, there was a lot of idolatry towards kids. And when the kid did something that didn't match with the parent's theology, the theology had to change. Is that the picture we see 
in the Bible? Or is it more like the Moroccan man that I met? I made, I made, we, we all met this man. He was 22 years old. We, none of us wrote his real name down because we didn't want anybody to see it. I have one picture. It's a little Polaroid, and it's never going to go on the internet or anything like that. This man at age 22 gave up trying to be his own savior and committed his life to Jesus. He told his family. His family disowned him. He is the single believer in a 50 generations of non-believers. His dad and his brothers said, if we see you on the street, we will murder you. Which one has the correct view of where children need to be when it comes to what saves us? Is it the one who says, well, I can't imagine my child walking away, so I'm going to change my beliefs? Or like this man who says, I may lose everything, I am going to follow Christ. Which one looks like Jesus? Which one looks like Paul? Which one looks like Peter post-resurrection? It's the second one, isn't it? So our self-worth is not tied to what our kids do. Also, our self-worth is not tied to whether or not we have kids. Because guess what? There are some people that want to have a family and they can't have it. Your self-worth is not attached to your kids. It's attached to Jesus and what he paid for you. So our identity, Jesus is trying to rip our identity out of anything to do with family and put it into the correct place, which is identifying with him. What if my kids are bad? What if my kids are good? Your value before Jesus has nothing to do with that. Now, do we need to be obedient and teach them? Absolutely. But we are to be obedient to him and see our worth there. So as a, as a parent, I have a vested interest in this. I, I need you all to be praying for my kids. I need you all to be praying for all the kids in this family. This entire church, we need to be praying for our children because our faith does not save these kids. They're still in the Ephesians 2.1, dead in their trespasses. I wish I could have enough faith to save my kids. I wish that my faith, if I had enough, could be passed on to all the kids at New Life Gladstone. It won't. So we have to bathe these kids in prayer. And we need to raise them up in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only the kids, but we need to raise each other up in this. That's one of the things that we do. We fellowship together. We've got people that have been believers for decades. We've got people that have been believers for months we need to be raising each other up in this. Not by putting a bunch of rules out, but getting to the heart. The heart is what matters. We need to teach our kids. If you're here and your kids are gone, there's plenty of kids running around out here. We need to teach our kids. And I just want to give you all a shout out. I love that there are about 35 of you that volunteer your time to work with our kids. That is such a blessing at one point, that was about 35, 30% of our church was working in the kids' ministry. That's a, good, that's a good percentage. So thank you for that. Our kids are in good hands. But that's what we need to do. We need to make sure our focus is on pointing people to what they need. And what they need is not to succeed in this world. There's a lot of people who are really worried about what college their kid gets into. What job? Are they going to be able to provide for food? That does not matter. What matters is, are they a part of the family of God? So we need to fix our priorities and get our, our, our goals in the right place. And we only do that when we help each other out with it. So that's the first one. 
Our family does not save. The second one, we have a better and bigger family. Our spiritual family is better than any earthly family. So if you're here today and you've had a good family and you're like, I have lots of good memories, don't let that become an idol because it will. Instead, look at it and go, if that's how good I've had it, oh my gosh, heaven and earth, when they come together in the new heaven and new earth, is going to be even better than that? Wow. That's the correct way to look at it. Instead of going, I need to make this even better this time, and we're going to go on this vacation, and we're going to get this house, and we're going to do these experiences. Don't let that goodness, the blessing the Lord has given you, don't let it become an idol to take you from him. Gosh, that's got to kill his heart, doesn't it? You have a good family. You have a healthy family. Don't let that be an idol. Well, let's say you've had a terrible family. And you're like, I, I don't even know what a good family would look like, a functioning family would look like. Well, praise be to God, that's as bad as it's going to get because it's only going to get better when you get to heaven. Put your hope in that, that you're, yes, we are a family. We're, this church is a family. And yes, we're not totally functional in all ways, right? We've got our issues because we're all still a bunch of sinners. But we're working together to become more like Christ and that glorious day that we get to be on the new heaven and new earth for eternity, we are going to be in a family of perfect individuals. Oh my gosh, that's going to be amazing. Can you imagine the barbecue that we're going to eat together? <laughs> Can you imagine the conversations that we're going to have up to late? Because you know what? We don't got to go to bed. Think about the family that we have coming our way. So if you have no family... If you're here and you're like, I'm the last one standing, or maybe you've, you haven't had a family for a very long time, there is a family. We are a family. We want to be your family, but even more so, you've got a family coming. It's going to be amazing. So not only is it better than the best family, it's bigger than the biggest family. And I've seen some big families. My kids go to a paideia. About four of you got that. Oh, good. There's a lot of big families at Paideia, okay? Right? So we're going to have this bigger family. Notice that Jesus makes his, his mother and his brothers wait outside because he's putting these two families on the same plane. They are both important. But he's also saying, my spiritual family's open. It's open to everyone. Everyone everywhere could be a part of this family. It's not based on location. It's not based on blood. It's based on Jesus. And then this family points to Jesus. Jesus points to himself. He says, this is my family, and they do the will of my Father. So we get this extended and extensive family that we get to be a part of. This is, a, again, going against this culture's view, going against our culture's view, and saying, no, our family is a spiritual family, and it's going to be an amazing one. So finally, our third inference is that doing the will of the Lord is to believe and to act. Doing the will of the Lord is to believe and to act. Now, Jesus doesn't say here what doing the will of the Lord is. He says it elsewhere. But it is to have faith, because faith is what saves us. Look at what John 6 says. When they found him on the other side of the sea, this is Jesus they found, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which is the Son of Man will give you. 
For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to do the works of God? Jesus answered, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. So the work of God that we are first and foremost having to do is we must have faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is not, oh, I believe in him over there. It's I am trusting in him. It's the same faith that every single one of you had when you sat on a chair today. You had faith that it was going to hold you up. The faith that we are to have in Jesus is the trust that he is going to hold you up. Ephesians 2 says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So that's the first thing. We're saved by faith. However, our faith must spill over. Our faith must act. And it's this faith alone saves, but faith is never alone because it's always got actions responding to it. Let's finish out that Ephesians passage. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Got it. That no one, not of your own doing, it's a gift of God. No one can boast, not of works. But look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul's saying, yes, you're saved by faith and it's all God's doing. You do nothing. But once you're saved, you are so full of that faith, it just spills out on those around you. This is what our family is to look like as a church at New Life Gladstone. Next week, we're going to talk about what that looks like in actual practice. But this is not salvation by works. It's by grace alone. But grace produces faith, and faith is never alone. It's always gratitude. It's always responding to God for what he did. And the last thing we see with this is that Jesus' love for his disciples is like the love of all family relationships combined. All the family relationships combined into one. That's how much he loves you. If you haven't gotten, as we've gone through this, and we're pointing forward to the cross, and yes, the cross is the ultimate sign of Jesus' love, but we see it throughout the Gospels. And right here, he's saying, I love you as much as I love my mother and my brothers and my sisters. He's saying, if you are my disciple, you are inside with me. You are home. You may not think that by reading or hearing these stories you are doing anything special, but if you are hearing these stories, the stuff we've been talking about with faith, he wants to reach over and say, you, I love you like my brother, my sisters, and my mother. This is the climax of where we've been. Matthew 12 is the pinnacle. And then there's a change of mood next two weeks when we get into Matthew 13. Because he's saying it's possible to be really religious and miss the point. It's possible to be related to Jesus and miss the point. You need to acknowledge that you must choose today who you are going to serve. And that's what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a believer so as we conclude, when we finally give up our rebellion against God and we submit to him, we see him and we submit to him. We say, and, and there's lots of different words that we've said. Maybe it's, Lord, forgive my sins. Lord, I'm sorry for my sins. Lord, clean me from the inside. I want you to be first in my life going forward. So as we're thinking about this, as we finish what does this mean? It means that Jesus is first above my boyfriend or my girlfriend. 
Jesus is first above my ambitions, my dreams, my plans. Jesus is first above my school, my grades, my extracurricular activities. Jesus is above my sports, my theater, my drama, my so on. Jesus is first above my money, my retirement, my big plans. And yes, Jesus is first above my family. Some of us need to return to him. Some of us need to go to him for the first time. But all of us can make him more first in our lives today. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I thank you for this short but powerful passage. I thank you, Lord, that Lord, you revealed places where I haven't been putting you first. And I pray that, Lord, you would forgive me for that. Lord, and I pray that as we look in our lives and see how we've maybe made idols of things that shouldn't be there, Lord, help us to repent and turn to you. Lord, if we don't know you, I pray that today would be the day that we start that relationship, that we join the family of God. Lord, we look forward to how you're going to use these words in our lives this week. In Jesus' name, amen.